This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Julian Brave Noise Cat is a voice that carries a message that is not always easy to hear. In his columns, his speeches, and media appearances, Noise Cat asserts the current relevance of the atrocities Native people have endured. At the same time, he consistently celebrates our collective survival despite the powerful colonial forces against us. Now, Brave Noise Cat is looking to new ways to get his message out. We'll hear about that coming up right after the news. National Native News, I'm Antonia Gonzalez. President of the National Congress of American Indians, Fawn Sharp, touched on climate change in her annual State of Indian Nations this week, but some attendees at the speech say their nations are being impacted by job losses as the country transitions away from fossil fuels. Matt Laszlo reports from Washington. President Sharp recently traveled to Davos, Switzerland for the World Economic Forum. She says many nations are now taking note of how indigenous people have traditionally lived in unity with their land. When politicians forget that we have political power, we remind them. When companies forget that we have economic and social power, we remind them. And we are using that power to make incredible progress for the earth and all things living. Christina Aspas is Navajo from New Mexico and a school board president. She says the closure of a coal mine and coal-fired power plant on their reservation is devastating the economy of the tribe, which is even seen at her school. As, as a district, we've lost 1,300 students since. And um, so there goes our student count, um, teacher retention. Uh, I mean, it just, you know, cascades. The impacts just ca cascade all the way down. The Biden administration is hoping to replace many of those traditional fossil fuel jobs with clean energy ones. President Sharp says this period of energy transition doesn't have to be either or. She says tribal nations are showing other nations and industries how to live today while being stewards of tomorrow. Finally, traditional ecological knowledge is being taken seriously as an equal and indispensable partner to Western science. It simply isn't possible to achieve sustainability or prevent wildfires or restore balance to nature without the practices that tribal nations have perfected for generations and for centuries. I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. A borough in Alaska is reconsidering the boundaries of a planning group in response to pushback from the remote Alaska Native community of Tyonic. But the borough's assembly spent more than an hour debating the issue this week. Representatives from Tyonic have been speaking out against their inclusion in a planning commission based on the other side of Cook Inlet in the community of Nikiski, which is connected by roads to the borough's population center. The commission makes recommendations about land use and planning to the borough. As it stands, its authority extends more than 3.5 million acres, but all the commissioners live in Nikiski, and Tyonic residents say they want to be removed 
from the map. The west side of Cook Inlet is not and never will be a part of the community of Nikiski. That's Tyonic Native Corporation's Chief Administrative Officer, Connie Downing. She rejected claims from Nikiski residents that Tyonic is part of their community and says differences in culture and resources between the two make them distinct. Downing and more than 50 other Tyonic residents and Alaska Native Corporations advocated for a plan to shrink the commission to just the east side. The assembly eventually seemed to come to terms with at least removing Tyonic from the map, but decided to postpone the issue they'll reconsider in March. The Junior Native Youth Olympics for student-athletes first to sixth grade is having its first in-person competition since 2020 this week in Anchorage. The games are a collection of nine events, which were originally used to maintain fitness for subsistence practices. This year, the competition is more anticipated than ever as the last games were held virtually due to COVID-19. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Ramona Farms, offering wholesome and delicious foods from our heirloom crops as our contribution to a better diet for the benefit of all people. We are honored to share our centuries-old farming and culinary traditions online at RamonaFarms.com. Support by the American Indian College Fund, providing millions of dollars of scholarships to Native students every year. Applications are accepted through May 31st at collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Julian Brave Noise Cat describes the Native experience since contact as an apocalypse. He frames colonial oppression as the deliberate and forceful separation of Native people from their land, their culture, their food, and their language. This is a driving subtext to Brave Cat's noise message in a variety of mediums to anyone who will listen. And people are listening. Among his many recognitions is the 2022 American Mosaic Journalism Prize from the Heising Simmons Foundation. He was named one of the 100 emerging leaders by Time Magazine in 2021, a list that included Dua Lipa, Olivia Rodrigo, and Raphael Warnock. Julian Brave Noise Cat is embarking on some new exciting projects that we'll hear about this hour. And as always, listeners are more than welcome to call in with questions and comments. Talk with Julian Brave Noise Cat today at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Bremerton, Washington is Julian Brave Noise Cat. He's a visiting fellow at the Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy, Center for Racial Justice at the University of Michigan. He's a journalist, a filmmaker, and a past champion powwow traditional dancer. Julian, you've been a guest on Native America Calling before. It's a pleasure to welcome you back as a native in the spotlight. And I do apologize for mispronouncing your name a minute ago in the intro, but please feel free to further introduce yourself. Uh, 
Julian Brave Noise Cat when squexed, when Kika had a squestwa, Alexander Radias when Kakachetis questwa, RG Noise Cat, Sequachwach, Kenneth Statland, Kenneth Eskin, which Dequin, when Chico Bay, Suquamish Luch. Good morning. Hello, everybody. Actually, what I literally said was you all survived the night. That's what Chukwinuk means in our language. It's the traditional morning greeting. And uh, my name is Julian Brave Noisecat. I introduced my most immediate um, family, which is my parents. Uh, my mother's name is Alexander Roddy, and my father's name is Ed Archie Noisecat. Uh, my family comes from the Canham Lake Indian Reserve. I also have a lot of relatives on the Mount Curry Reserve in British Columbia, Canada. We're Sequetbuch and Statliunk uh, First Nations, and I currently reside on the territory of the Suquamish uh, on a little bay called Chico Bay, which is actually named for a Suquamish uh patriarch whose uh, village was just down the way here back in the day um which is bremerton washington uh, in the present so thank you so much for having me sean on on native america calling and uh it's great to be back well you bet julian and it looks like uh you've got a a, a pretty full home office there in the background with a lot of books and, and notes there on on the whiteboard. I know you're just really busy, especially over these last few years. And let's start off with where you're at right now. You're writing for various publications. You're working on your first documentary film. Tell us how that came about. I've actually colonized the um, kitchen, the dining room. I work at the <laughs> dining room table. So there's a whiteboard behind me and then my my books are you can't see the ones in front of me, but the books are all in the shelf behind me. And then there's a bunch of them in front of me. It's a bit of a mess right now. I'll tell you what, um, it's, a, it's a, I'm sorry, it's a working office. Because whenever I see these like perfect offices with the books, you know, the titles just perfectly aligned, I know it's like staged, right? But that looks like a, a, an office or a place where you really get a lot of work done. Yeah, it is. It is a place where I, well, I, I, I aim to get a lot of work done. You know, different days, I get different amounts of work done for sure. But right now, I'm, um, I, I have the great fortune to work on two of my big first projects, my first book and my first feature documentary. So the book uh, is, is titled We Survived the Night. Uh, it will be published by Knopf in North America, uh, by Albert Michel in France, by uh, Profile Books in the UK and Commonwealth, and by Offbau Verlag in Germany. It's a book that uh, is kind of ambitious. It com combines um, some of my reporting over the last almost decade now uh, with family history and a little bit of oral history to sort of make uh, tell the story of Indigenous peoples in the U.S. and Canada in the present in three thematic parts. So those parts, we can get into this a little bit more, are Apocalypse, which I've talked about um, in prior work. So it's about Indigenous peoples as post-apocalyptic peoples, as people who have survived uh, the near total death and destruction of our worlds. Uh, the second part is called Odyssey, and it's about Indigenous peoples returning to and reclaiming home and homelands. And uh, the third part is called Trickster, and it's about Indigenous peoples living in both Indigenous and colonial worlds at the same time and sort of making Indigenous worlds amidst a, a colonial present or bringing back Indigenous worlds amidst a colonial present. Um, the the feature-length documentary is uh, called Sugarcane, and it follows the search and investig uh, excavation sorry, of unmarked graves at St. Joseph's Mission in Williams Lake, British Columbia, which is the residential school where my family was sent 
in Canada. Uh, so it's a, it's a feature length documentary that follows that search in real time and then follows the lives of uh, four main participants and the community around that search and sort of gets at the way in which that history is, is not past very much alive in the present and that the, the toll of the residential schools is not something that is just the numbers that are being found to the ground, but it, it's, it's very much um, still having impacts and unfortunately still taking lives today. So those are my two big projects that I'm trying to do at the same time, uh, which is why my office kitchen space is a little bit uh, hectic right now. <laughs> and in the midst of this all, you are a fellow there with uh, the University of Michigan School of Public Policy. So um, in, in what role are you working there uh, in partnership with the University of Michigan? Are you, are you traveling back and forth? Or are you mostly doing it remotely? I mostly do it remotely. Um, I travel back at least once a semester. Um, originally, they had reached out to me about uh, visiting sort of professor type role where I would teach a class. Um, and that ultimately didn't really work with my um, book and now documentary projects. Uh, but instead, they, they have this for the first time this academic year, they have uh, created this Center for Racial Justice and they have three visiting fellows. Uh, whose work and research they're supporting through their projects. Uh, and so I was very fortunate to get one of those visiting fellowships, uh, which is, is mostly geared towards supporting me while I work on my projects. Although I do go back and, and um, speak at symposiums and I work with a research assistant from there and, and have office hours once in a long while and things like that. But it's a really, really great program, and I'm really grateful to the to the university for its support. And as as we were talking actually before the show started, Ann Arbor is an incredible college town, and I do hope that I get to go back and maintain some sort of relationship with the university moving forward because it's an incredible institution and a great place. Mm. Now, this documentary, I know with it, uh, you know, not being out yet, you probably don't want to say too much, but it's such a timely topic now with regard to, to the boarding schools, the residential schools, uh, this ground penetrating radar and, and what this type of uh, research is suggesting. And um, any idea for a release date on this? We're aiming to premiere in early 2024. Um, so we... I could probably talk about how much of it we've we've filmed. So we budgeted for about 140 shoot days, uh, and we've been on the ground filming for over 120 days now. So we're we're coming very close to um, having completed our our filming. And this fall we entered the edit. So this is the part where we're watching back all this film making string outs for each of our characters. Uh, and then in March, we're actually gonna have a meeting in LA with me and my co-director and our editor. My co-director's name is Emily Cassie. She's incredible uh, multimedia journalist. Our editor's name is Nathan Penoir. We're all gonna get together and we're gonna work on the sort of big structure um, of the film, essentially like a big outline of mm -hmm. what the film um, can look like. So that's where we're at. And um, I can also say a little bit about what's publicly known about the search at St. Joseph's Mission. So. A year ago, uh, the first part of the ground penetrating radar study there uh, identified 93 potential unmarked uh, burials. And then the second part of the ground penetrating radar study identified over 60, I believe 66 maybe, um, just last month. 
so there's potentially 150 or so um, unmarked graves at the Williams Lake Residential School. And unlike other um, schools, uh, the Williams Lake School and the First Nation leading the search at, at the Williams Lake School, which is called uh, the Williams Lake First Nation, is actually going to excavate uh, the site. So they're they're planning on moving forward with that uh, in the spring. And sort of that's going to be the culmination of the project. And that uh, when they excavate, I mean, that's going to really provide the actual true evidence, right? Because at this point, they just can't really be certain until they get in, they dig in that ground, right? That's exactly right. So I think one of the things that maybe was lost in the initial media coverage of this story is that until they um, daylight or ground truth uh, some of these ground penetrating radar studies, they know with a very high degree of probability that there are, and of course, you know, we know that there are, you know, bodies of our of our children and our relatives in in the ground um, but you cannot be a hundred percent certain um, archaeologically speaking and, and investigatively speaking until um, there is actual uh, excavation of some of these sites so um, Williams Lake is planning on moving forward with that part of the investigation as well which I think is um, you know, that's a very heavy and consequential um, decision, of course, you know, it's it's no small thing to choose to, uh, you know, dig up, dig up some of these these burials and, um, right, you know, to be right. able to follow that and to be part of that. And, you know, my own family was was sent to that school. Julian, we're gonna have to take a break here, but uh, we'll definitely talk more uh, about some of these issues right on the other side of this break. If you have a question for Julian Brave Noise Cat, give us a call, 1-800-99-NATIVE. We'll be right back. The site of a brutal massacre in 1890 became the focal point of Native resistance 50 years ago today. Coming off of demonstrations at Alcatraz and the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the American Indian Movement began their chaotic and controversial 71-day occupation of the village of Wounded Knee on February 27, 1973. We'll remember that time and assess progress for Native people since then. That's on the next Native America Calling. Hey, Pink Teeth. Medicaid and CHIP cover many children's dental services, including teeth cleaning, fluoride treatment, and fillings. For more information about children's dental health, Contact your Indian health care provider, visit insurekidsnow.gov, or call 877-543-7669. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Elakwa. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking with award-winning writer and filmmaker Julian Brave Noise Cat today. He's our February Native in the Spotlight. He's a strong voice when it comes to Native advocacy. If you have comments or questions for him, you're welcome to join the conversation. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Julian, before break, uh, you were talking a little bit about the ground-penetrating radar and uh, the significance of that with regard to these Canadian residential schools. And you were sharing a, a little bit of family history, and uh, this is personal for you. Yeah, I mean, essentially, 
the difficulty and challenge of doing this project for me personally, and I think for everybody involved with the investigation, whether or not they're you know making a film about it, is that the residential school experience was from sort of my family's perspective, and I think my community's perspective, so horrible that it wasn't talked about often. Um, my, my grandmother, for example, still rarely, if ever, talks about what happened at the schools. And there's really just a couple stories that she shares. And I've heard those stories many times now. Um, and a lot of her experience is just stuff that she doesn't feel comfortable speaking about. She's gotten you know, support and help um, with all of it, but it, it, it's largely um, remains unspoken, which I think is, I think speaks to just how awful the experience was, that it's the kind of trauma that people, you know, aim to memory hole and forget and um, not talk about. And then I think it also speaks to, uh, you know, I, I believe as a, as a, as a storyteller and, and as someone who believes the power of words, right? Like, I, I think that part of the challenge of getting through uh, this trauma is, is our ability to actually talk about what has happened. Because once we, you know, speak to that truth and talk about what had happened and, and how that impacted our families and how that is still impacting, um, so it's still impacting us, you know, I think that that's how we can actually start to, to really heal and to, to work through um, some of these challenges. But without being able to talk about it, it's very hard to, to do any of that. So that's been essentially what this project has been about for me. And I think what, what it's been about for um, so many of the other people uh, involved. And it's been incredibly, it's been like, honestly, one of the greatest honors of my life to watch, um, to, to have the opportunity to do this with myself, with my family, and then also to watch other members of um, our community, you know, take this on so bravely and to speak their truth and to you know, try to try to move forward despite some truly awful, awful things. Now, you recently traveled to the Vatican. I assume it was with regard to these issues and the upcoming documentary. I actually tried to sneak into the Vatican. Oh, you did? <laughs> and, okay. um, yes. And uh, both me and my co-director did. And I, I tried to sneak in because I knew she was going to try to sneak in to try to get the, the shot. And I, I guess I could say one of us succeeded and one of us did not, but we both tried. Okay. Um, Wait, how does this work? How does somebody to... try? To, how do you sneak into the? I mean, that's a heavily armed. It's basically a fortress, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> it is a fortress. There's there's a lot of levels of security. Um, you know, I, I, I we we took different approaches. I'll say one of us. Um, one of us was with our participant. Uh, one of our subjects who was part of the delegation of survivors who went for the Pope's apology to residential school survivors. Um, and so she, um, Emily tried that angle of going, going with, um, going with our, our, our subject. And then I tried the angle of, um, talking my way, way in via like saying like, oh, like, what do you mean? I'm not on the list. Um, and one of us had, had more success than the others. And that's probably a story that we should save until uh, the documentary's out, but it, it's a really, it was, it was quite the experience. Um, and, you know, I, what, I, what was really fascinating about it to me was so ironic was that the, you know, Catholic church was doing this apology to residential school survivors, and yet they would not let any outside media 
into the actual room where the apology was being delivered to cover it. So, um, and, and this is at the same time as they have not released um, a lot of documents still with regards to the residential school experience. So on the one hand, you know, they wanted to say sorry and they wanted to finally let the truth be known, but they wouldn't even let outside media into the actual chamber where the apology happened, which was in my opinion, you know, he delivered the entire apology in Italian to a room full of people who did not speak Italian. <laughs> um, you know, it was a big kind of anticlimactic moment anyways, and yet they wouldn't I, let us yeah. in because it's the Catholic Church. It was so, it was so strange. Yeah, um, I interviewed somebody else who was there and she said, we didn't even know it was happening. It was all in Italian and he just kind of was talking and then somebody later said, oh yeah, he, he apologized or something like that. It was just like, like really non-significant for those people that were in the room. Well, and then he ended it by going, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, we're know, definitely going to wait. I should also say that 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 the the you know my fam my family is still Catholic my grand my grandmother is at least my cat still Catholic and I brought her back rosaries from the Vatican and the apology I think meant a lot to especially older generations of people who still are tied to the Catholic Church I don't want to say that it wasn't a significant step um, I myself do not identify as Catholic most people in my generation and my family do not so I think it was more for that older generation who still have connections to the Church and the faith that it was that it was meaningful but for me personally. I was like, what the heck was that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's important, though, to hear from those perspectives of, of older folks and, and what that means to them. So, yeah, I really appreciate you, you pointing that out. And uh, Julian, let's switch gears a little bit and, 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 you know, talk about this this novel that you have coming up as well, because, uh, you know, you're a, a journalist at heart. That's really been the focus of most of your writing. And, and, and why switch to, to fiction? What's what's inspiring that? Oh, it's it is nonfiction. Sorry, I don't know if that was that was clear. It's a oh, I'm it's sorry. a nonfiction okay. book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. it's a combination of memoir and reportage. So it's a combination of sort of ju classic journalistic type magazine style writing, and then more personal writing about um, family and and about um, some of our oral histories also uh, incorporated. But and, I, someday um, maybe I'll I'll have the I'll have the stones to jump in. I appreciate the encouragement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about your upbringing. I know you were raised in, in the Oakland area, um, you know, a site of uh, the relocation program, for better or worse, for, for a lot of Native families. What was that like? You know, I uh, a huge part of who I am, I think, has to do with where I come from and where I was raised, um, which was in Oakland. Uh, my parents moved there when I was very young. I was, think I was like three years old. Uh, and then my parents split up. So I actually mostly grew up with my mom in Oakland. My mom's non-native. Um, but in Oakland, there is one of the oldest urban Indian community centers in the country. It's called the Intertribal Friendship House. It's still in the same place it's always been on International Boulevard in East Oakland. Um, it's been there since the 50s. And, um, you know, especially after my dad uh, sort of wasn't in the, the picture for a while there as a, as a kid, um, it was incredibly meaningful for me um, to have that connection to, you know, Indian country and to our our culture um, via the intertribal friendship house. So I used to, we used to go there all the time. They'd have um, drum and dance practice on Thursday nights and they'd have all sorts of different little community functions and feeds and all sorts of things. And I remember when I was a little kid, I was super... Uh, 
shy and reluctant to go out and dance. So I'd sit on, uh, there was a woman named Grandma Wakazu, who was kind of like the matriarch of the, of the community. She was uh, part of the original sort of relocation generation. And I'd sit on her lap uh, during drum and dance practice because I was too scared to go out and dance. And then eventually, um, you know, I got the courage to go out there. And now I'm, you know, I still travel the powwow circuit. So that was a huge part of, of my upbringing. And then the other thing that was really big in, in Oakland was the memory of the occupation of Alcatraz and that sort of generation of Native activism in the late 60s and early 70s was a huge part of the community's memory. Um, and some of our closest family friends, people who I, I consider family like Eloy Martinez, um, participated in the Alcatraz occupation and played a very significant role in maintaining the memory of the occupation at Alcatraz. Uh, so, for example, Eloy uh, did this really incredible thing where he brought back um, some of the children of the original occupiers to repaint the um, slogans that were left on Alcatraz. And so if you go visit Alcatraz Island today, you'll see that they're they're very, you know, it says red power and it says, you know, um, Indian property and all these sort of different messages left on the island. And that was because he facilitated making that happen. Um, so that was a huge part of, of my upbringing as well. And I remember every um, Thursday night when I was a little kid, they would sing the American Indian Movement song uh, at the end of drum and dance practice. So at the end of drum and dance practice, everybody would gather around the drum and they'd, they'd sing the Ames song. Um, and so it was really, you know, um, shown to us through so many different ways in our community that this was an important part of our history and something that we should be proud of and that's something we should carry forward. Uh, and, you know, I, I see that as, as still uh, deeply impacting and, and shaping what I do today, for sure. And Julian, as a child there going to school in Oakland, I don't know if you went to, to public school or not, but was that taught at all, the occupation of Alcatraz in some of those events, even like issues around relocation? And you mentioned Friendship House. I've been there in the Mission District, and I know what a, what a powerful uh, venue that is. And what was that like growing up, like the education wise? Yeah, that's such an interesting um, question, because despite the fact that California in general and Oakland in particular is very, very, uh, I guess what the people would call today woke, like the, Oakland was woke before woke was a thing. <laughs> um, and, you know, Oakland's the birthplace of the Black Panther Party. Um, Cesar Chavez did some of his first community org organizing in Fruitvale in, in Oakland. Um, you know, it's still the home of a very active labor movement uh, through the Port of Oakland. You know, it's just, it's this place with very significant um, activist history. And yet, when I was growing up, um, very, very few people knew that there was a significant urban Native population in Oakland and the Bay Area. And also very few people knew that, uh, you know, essentially the Native rights movement's equivalent of the Montgomery bus boycott happened at Alcatraz, right? Like that was, that is a starting point uh, for a lot of the modern um, indigenous movement, not just in the US, but 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 more broadly even. And people just didn't know. Uh, and if you go to Alcatraz, you know, it's it's more visible than it, than it was when I was a kid, but you know, it used to be just like one little room in the back corner of Alcatraz where you could really learn about the occupation. Then of course there was the sunrise ceremonies twice a year. Um, so it was not known. Uh, and I remember actually in high school, one of my history teachers had us watch a um, Ken Burns, I think, documentary, some sort of documentary about 
what was going on in the Bay Area in the 60s. And it had no mention of the Alcatraz mm. occupation. And I pointed this out. I was like, man, this is like, this is like missing like one of the most significant <laughs> stories that happened here. Like, how do you make a documentary about this and completely miss it? Because um, it had the student movement and all these other things. So yeah, I mean, it's still it's still overlooked. I think things are changing now. When I go back to Oakland now, I don't live there, of course, now. But um, when I go back, it seems like people are more aware. Uh, people are aware now, for example, that um, Oakland is a Loney territory. That was something you'd never hear people acknowledge other than Native people back in the day. So it's changing. Um, but when I was a kid, despite the fact that Oakland is really proud of this, this other sort of diverse activist history, the Native part of it was very much um, unknown and forgotten, fortunately. Julia, it sounds like um, your your passions and, and your interest in, in political issues and, and other types of events, you just... I mean, you were, you were born into this. I mean, it goes way back in, into your family history. Um, I think that we all are in a way, right? You know, I think uh, every Native person I've met has some sort of relationship to, um, of course, colonization, which impacted all of us. I mean, we're having this conversation in English, of course, which is, uh, you know, clear marker of, of what happens to this entire <laughs> continent. Um, you know, and then I think that there's there's also in various ways uh, all sorts of diverse movements that uh, were essentially about, you know, protecting and getting back what what is rightfully ours, you know, our land, our culture, um, our rights to self-determine and self-govern. You know, that happened everywhere that I know of across North America in different ways. Um, and so I think that most most people, um, well, every native person I've met has has some sort of part of that in their history, the history of our of our colonization and the history of our um, fighting back against that. And sometimes, you know, there's deep contradictions there. So, for example, I've talked about my my cat on this this um, radio program. You know, she's she's both, uh, as I said, she's very Catholic. She's also one of the last two remaining fluent speakers on our on our reservation at Cannon Lake, and she's the reason why I was able to give my introduction and Sikwat Mukhtin and um, be able to understand a good amount of our language. And so sometimes we hold both of those histories, you know, within within ourselves at the at the same time. And um, you know, I think it's just about being indigenous is about like sorting through all that and trying to figure out where we go from here, right? And I think that we're all trying to do that in our own way. Yeah, that's a really good point. So when did you turn to journalism then? Um, journalism was almost sort of a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I think I started first, I didn't, I didn't do anything for the, the high school paper when I was a kid. I wrote like op-eds because I was a student activist in college, but I didn't like, I wasn't like a reporter for the uh, Columbia Spectator. I just wrote some op-eds basically about like why native students uh, should have housing and why, uh, you know, the university should celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day and, you know, things of that nature. And I realized um, that the ability to write and have a voice was its own form of um, power, I guess, its own form of, of influence that I wanted to hone and develop. And then after undergrad, I got a summer gig before going to graduate school. Um, as the first and only ever uh, essentially glorified intern. They called me the Native Issues Fellow at the Huffington Post. 
where I was a beat reporter covering covering whatever was going on in in Indian country. They never had one after me, so I don't know if they did a very good job. Uh, <laughs> but I did do that job for a while uh, over the summer, and from there, I just decided that continuing to write was something that I uh, wanted to do. Amidst all that, I also, I guess, one um, one sort of important moment was that I. Uh, I was a finalist for the the Rhodes Scholarship, and I had this very intense and weird sort of racial um, sort of prejudiced experience, is the way that I experienced it uh, in the interview process. I ended up writing about it, um, and the piece got a fair amount of readership and stuff. And then that's when I really realized, like, I could I could do the kind of writing um, that might have uh, at least readership. Um, beyond just like what I was doing on campus for the, the student paper. Julian, we're going to have to take another break here. Folks listening on the air, we have Julian Brave Noise Cat. He's going to talk more about some of these awards, some of his journalism projects and, and related passions. Uh, give us a call, 1-800-99-NATIVE. Support for the menu comes from Spirit Mountain Roasting Company, a small batch specialty coffee roaster located on the Fort Yuma Quetzon Reservation. Information and online ordering at spiritmountainroasting.com slash news. Program support by Penguin Random House, publisher of She Persisted, Wilma Mankiller, by Tracy Sorrell, a children's book about the first woman principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. More on this and other stories at prh.com slash stories of the land. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're here with Julian Brave Noisecat. He's an award-winning writer, journalist, and filmmaker. We're at 1-800-996-2848 if you want to give a shout-out to Julian. We're also talking about journalism and Native representation in news media, which begs the question, does the media do a good job on its coverage of Native people? Call us at 1-800-99-NATIVE to share your thoughts. Julian, let's go ahead and go to the phones right now. We've got Justin listening on station KMHA in Newtown, North Dakota. Justin, you're on the air. Good afternoon or good morning, wherever you are. Uh, thanks for having me, Sean. And I just have a question for Julian as a entrepreneurial point of view. I, I'm actually helping my wife's uh, project and they're a part of the Ute, the, the Roots magazine. And the founder of that, she written a book called Bears Braid, based off of real life experiences. It's a book of cultural identity, bullying, overcoming hardships, and sharing our culture. It was made to educate those who don't understand the ways and, and to empower our native youth and to be strong and be proud of who they are. And if you want to know more about that, you can go to imaginativeinc.com. But my question is, you know, coming from a documentary point of view, what kind of steps can an organization take toward that direction? All righty. Uh, Julian, yeah, please respond. Uh, it sounds like Justin is interested in, uh, you know, making a career out of writing. And, and, and what does it take, really, to, to make a living doing what you do? It seems challenging. Yes, it's definitely challenging. I'll just say also that I, I, I got to work with some of the folks over at uh, KMHA one time. Um, I did a story about 
the effort to get everybody counted on the Fort Berthold reservation in the 2020 census for a program called Snap Judgment. And then they also ran the show on KMHA. So sh shout out to Newtown. I've actually been to Newtown. Um, to answer your question, uh, you know, I think the only way to really do it is just to start doing it. You know, if you have a, if you have a story uh, that you want to share or tell, like you, you, you know, you got to try to, to write. And then, um, you know, I think that there's like some for documentary stuff, there is like a lot of technical um, knowledge and expertise that's needed. Um, so I've had the great fortune to work with, uh, you know, folks who have made films before, um, you know, cinematographers, editors, uh, my co-director has a, a significant amount of multimedia journalism experience. And that sort of thing, I think, is 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 really uh, important, especially for documentary, which takes a lot of know-how with the cameras and the editing and all that sort of stuff. So um, I would just say for, you know, with respect to your wife's story, writing, starting to write, starting to talk about it is, is a great first step. And then, um, you know, reaching out to the kinds of people who, you know, know how to shoot, um, you know, would be another way to start going about that kind of thing. Great question. Yeah, it is. And it's interesting, you know, that whole issue of, you know, the, the financial side of it, because you won the American Mosaic Journalism Prize, and it's the largest monetary prize in journalism. So congratulations. I mean, it's just, it's just huge. But I'm interested in hearing, you know, your thoughts on that. What was it about, uh, you know, what did the committee see in you with regard to that prize? And, and other than, than the cash stipend, I mean, what does a prize like this offer in terms of how you can just expand uh, your following and just continue to, to voice these concerns and, and press for some of these issues that you're so committed to? Um, you know, I think I mostly just got lucky. There's a lot of very talented journalists out there. And um, it was such an honor to be selected for that prize and to you know have a jury of outstanding journalists look at, you know, a bunch of people. I didn't even know I was up for the award is the way that it works. Uh, and eventually I just got a call that I had won this thing and, you know, to know that I might, they'd read my work and listened to my work and, you know, chose me after looking at my stuff next to a whole bunch of other amazing journalists work was you know, an incredible honor. And of course the cash prize that went with it, with it um, was incredibly helpful in supporting uh my current projects it you know freed me up to not have to hustle on a bunch of different freelance projects while i was writing my book and and making this documentary it also allowed me to invest actually in that trip to the vatican so i took ten thousand dollars from the prize and put it right into the being able to for me and my co-director to actually go to the vatican and everything um so it was it was incredibly uh incredibly incredibly helpful and, you know, that's I, I, unfortunately with the way that the journalism industry is right now, um, you, you do if you're in sort of my position as a freelancer, self, self-employed kind of person doing this, you kind of have to cobble it together um, between, you know, a book advance and fellowship money and awards and, um, you know, my director's fee and, and speaking engagements and all these sorts of different things to make it work and to be able to pay for your health care and pay for your life, you know, mm -hmm. um, so <laughs> I hope I get to hop back on the ride. I hope I make a, I write a successful book and make a successful enough documentary that I get to hop back on the ride and do it all again. <laughs> never guaranteed. Well, let's talk more about Native journalism specifically. And, you know, our show, Native America Calling, we've been on the air now 30 years and, uh, since, you know, a, a lot has changed. There's been a lot of progress, but at the same time, 
we're still the only live uh, radio show, you know, call-in radio show nationally that's dedicated to to Native voices. And uh, what's your thought in terms of where Native journalism, Native media is headed? And uh, I mean, you know, what have been some big wins? And, and then what are some things that we still need to to move forward? A great question. And I have, a, I think I have a unique perspective on this because my people are from Canada and I do work in both Canada and the United States. So I'm based in the United States, but I cover a lot of stories in Canada. I've worked for both Canadian and American publications. And what is one of the most stark differences between the landscape in the U.S. and the landscape in Canada for Indigenous peoples is on the issue of representation and in particular representation in the media. Um, so while Indigenous peoples in the U.S. and Canada are often interrelated, we often face a lot of the same issues. It's very, very similar for the most part. One of the things that Canada does have that I think the U.S. has a lot less of is representation. Um, you know, there's the CBC Indigenous vertical. There's all sorts of different um, programs to support Indigenous uh, media and journalism. Uh, there's the APTN, the Aboriginal People's Television Network, uh, which is often on. If you go to like my cat's house any given day, it's on her television. Um, and you know, in the U.S., that we we do have some somewhat equivalent things. Um, you know, they the Indian Country Today team has started doing a, a newscast, for example, that's picked up by some public TV. Um, Indian Country Today, you know, has has done good work for a long time, as have a number of other uh, national native publications and tribal publications. But the amount of support that that gets. Um, in terms of nonprofit funding and in terms of, um, you know, public spending, you know, there, there isn't really an equivalent uh, to what you're getting in Canada. And ultimately, that means that, you know, Native uh, issues and Native people have a lot less visibility in the news. I think that that's maybe starting to change, um, you know, particularly in Hollywood. You know, we've seen recently, of course, reservation dogs uh, on Hulu and FX, that's that's really sort of um, brought more representation to Native folks. And there's there's more and more um, things coming out of sort of pop culture that are getting getting us on on the map, if you will. Uh, but I think we still have a lot a long ways to go. And unfortunately, more broadly speaking, you know, journalism is in a rough spot, uh, which makes, you know, for a, a people that are already underrepresented in a, in a troubled industry, you know, that's it, it's mm -hmm. a hard formula to crack. Yeah, we have those discussions uh, with our, our, our staff here at Native America Calling about just uh, the challenges facing the industry at large, not just from a Native perspective, but everybody who's working in the space really is is going through a tough time. And I also want to talk, Julian, about uh, the federal government and, and, you know, the first Native uh, American cabinet secretary in Deb Holland. And, and you played a role in that appointment. What was it? Um, I think I was the first person to say publicly that she should be the interior secretary <laughs> was the, the first part of it. And then um, I, I guess I'll tell the story really briefly. So uh, I, I used to fake it till I make it as a journalist, by which I meant that my main job until pretty recently was actually working in politics and policy. So my last job was uh, working for a think tank called Data for Progress, where I was the vice president of policy and strategy. And back during the 2020 election season, before Joe Biden won the presidency, uh, Data for Progress put out sort of like a fantasy football style, like draft your ideal uh, liberal ca cabinet for uh, Joe Biden. And I, my contribution to that was saying like, well, let's put some 
native women for interior secretary. So I threw Vaughn Sharp and Deb Holland on our sort of list, list of people Biden might pick. And then, you know, fast forward a little while, um, I knew uh, then Congresswoman, now Madam Secretary Holland, and also her chief of staff. And in September, uh, this is, of course, the COVID year, remember, I was like going out to uh, Ocean City, Maryland, which is like this sort of cheap boardwalk town, uh, not that far from DC for like a weekend. And I got a call from her chief of staff, and I thought I was in trouble for having <laughs> put her name out there because I was like, she's like a freshman Congresswoman. You know, I thought that maybe she, I stepped on some toes or something. And I like apologized for the first like 15 minutes on the phone with her chief of staff. And then finally, when I was done, her chief of staff went, well, when people ask, we're not saying we're not interested. <laughs> and from that point on, I was like, oh, wow, this could actually maybe be a thing. So I, I kind of used my um, my skills as a journalist and, you know, I have a decent Twitter following and, uh, you know, I was also kind of in politics to play the game of influence and making a positive story about it. I wrote a couple articles for Politico magazine and, um, you know, helped support and coordinate that, uh, that campaign. And, and, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that um, she was an outsider, um, you know, and um, there were some other people uh, in particular, uh, Senator Udall, a former Senator Udall, who were probably ahead of her line for that job. Uh, and we mm -hmm. had to, figure out how to tell the story and make the case in a compelling enough way uh, that the Democrats would be willing to let her go and also um, let her leave the House of Representatives, which at the time, this is some really insider politics stuff, there was a very small, actually, Democratic majority in the House of Representatives. And one of the concerns was that they couldn't take too many members of Congress uh, and put them in cabinet positions. So we had to make a, we had to convince some people, actually. And right. uh, my job was to kind of do that publicly via my, my my journalism or not even my job. That was just kind of the role that I decided I wanted to play in all this, which was it was the coolest campaign I've ever gotten to be a part of, without a doubt. Well, in that district uh, that she represented in New Mexico, uh, it's in Albuquerque and it's a district that uh, traditionally kind of goes red and red and blue back and forth. So there was no guarantee that if she'd left that position in the House, that that would be replaced you know, by, by another Democrat. So it was definitely, you know, a risk. So anyway, the, the rest is history there, uh, Julian. So good job uh, for perhaps you were the first uh, to, to make that, uh, make that call. And Julian, I, I know you gave the, the commencement address at uh, University of Michigan at the School of Public Policy last year. And, and I, I watched it and, and there was a quote there at the end. And I just want to read it out loud because it, it just really moved me. And, and it's regards to your name. And, and you said to be a noise cat is to be among the last of your name, to be a survivor dangling on the limb of a family tree they couldn't quite chop down. And you, you ended your speech there, that commencement address last year with that quote. And uh, tell us more about that. I mean, your, the significance of your name and, and, and how it moves you forward and, and everything that you do. So that um, talk was, I. I it didn't really have a title, but I, for me, it's called what what's in a name, and it's essentially about the significance of names and naming, uh, in the context of my own sort of Salish peoples, uh, but then also in the context of, you know, working on this project, where part of what happened at the residential schools, of course, is that children were taken there and their names were changed, um, and you know, if you go to like the Canem Lake, res where my family's from, almost everybody has like a first name for a last name, because way back when, 
you know, somebody was um, baptized and they would just be given a, a first name. So like my family's colonized name is, is Archie. And the unfortunate truth is that we used to have tons of um, ancestral names and, and earned names, and these would be uh, remembered and passed on. And some of them went back way, way back. Um, like, you know, for example, the on the Mount Curry res, there's still someone who has the name of the prophet who, who foresaw the great flood, like that name is still alive and passed down and it goes all the way back to the great flood, which was thousands of years ago. Um, so this is a really significant thing in our culture and they almost nearly killed it. Uh, and my great grandmother was actually the last person who had the name the Wieskit, which is how it was originally said until it was uh, essentially messed up by some missionaries and became noise cat, which is what it is today. And so I was, I was reflecting on, you know, the importance of that and trying to impress upon the graduates, you know, the importance of remembering who you are and where you come from and the significance of that and the significance of the people who gave you your name and, you know, the importance of honoring them as you move forward into your, into your next part of your life, which I think, you know, especially for, for Native peoples, I know that that experience of name changing and name reclaiming and earning names and all that sort of stuff is shared across a lot of our nations and cultures and languages. Um, you know, that's something that is, is really important to me. And, uh, you know, it's something that me and my dad actually, I'm, I'm really grateful that my dad actually reclaimed that name. So he, when he married my mom, he was the one who changed his name, but he didn't change it to her name. He changed it to uh, his grandmother's name noise cat or, or we skit. I'm really grateful that he brought that name back because otherwise the name literally would have, have been dead. Um, nobody would have carried forward that name. And, uh, you know, it's a name that I'm sure stretches back a long, long, long time. That's a really cool story, Julian. Thank you for sharing it. And we are going to have to wrap up the show now. It's been already an hour. I can't believe how time flew, but, uh, again, big thank you to our guest and native in the spotlight, Julian brave noise cat. Join us next week for another lineup of conversations about Indigenous issues and topics, beginning with a commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the occupation of Wounded Knee. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Show McPollin is the digital producer. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our National Underwriting Sales Director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our Chief Operations Officer. The President and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Have a great weekend. Support from the Self-Governance Communication and Education Tribal Consortium presenting the 2023 Tribal Self-Governance Conference at the River Spirit Resort in Tulsa, Oklahoma, June 26th to the 29th. Learn how tribes are using self-governance for the delivery of programs and services for their citizens and communities and how this authority improves the health and well-being of tribal communities. Early bird registration closes February 25th at tribalselfgov.org.
Are you a Native American health care provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin a six-month advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online masterclass looks through the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach to provide powerful, proven modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 24, 2023. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.